This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. You can see that today we're going to be looking at the gospel taking root in our lives and bearing fruit in our workplaces, our places of employment. This is an important topic because a lot of voices in our culture don't always value work. And even those of us who are fully employed, we don't always see the value of work. We don't always see the purpose of work. And oftentimes, we don't even see the actual meaning of what we're doing on any given day. Um, Culturally, thinking widely as a culture, oftentimes we see work as nothing more than a necessary evil. It's just simply our daily plight. It's just what we have to do to make ends meet here on planet Earth. Um, About 75 years ago, it was the seven dwarfs who sang, Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's home from work we go. Perhaps in the 21st century, a better translation of that would be, I-O, I-O, so it's off to work I go. And so oftentimes, our primary motivation for even going to work or having a job is to simply support the lifestyle that I want or to pay off the lifestyle perhaps I foolishly sought. And maybe that's why we're so disenchanted with our jobs. Gallup recently showed us that approximately one-third of the American workforce is disengaged at their jobs. And by definition, Gallup would define a disengaged employee as one who is not involved in nor enthusiastic about, nor committed to their work and workplace. You might even be here today and you're trying to figure out how you can get out of your job in order to find another one. And maybe you're there this morning as a disengaged employee, as Gallup would define one. And maybe you work, 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 but you are just simply disengaged. The seven dwarfs go on to sing in that song, and this may be the part of the song that you don't recognize, but they sing about dig, 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 dig from morning until night. We dig up diamonds by the score, a thousand rubies, sometimes more, but we don't know what we dig them for, so we dig, 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 dig. Maybe that's where you are in your job this morning. I'm doing X, Y, or Z, X, Y, or Z. I'm doing it, doing it, doing it, but I don't know what I'm doing it Four. Well, this morning, I want to attempt from the scriptures to show you why we dig and to show you why we work and prayerfully let you leave this morning being more empowered in your job or more empowered in your vocational ambitions than you were when you came through the doors today. Now, when we go to Colossians chapter 3, last week we were looking at the gospel taking root and bearing fruit in our homes and we saw what wives are to do and what husbands are to do, what children are to do, what parents are to do. And then in verse 22, he starts talking about bond servants. Now, in the first century Greco-Roman world, bond servants, or sometimes the word can be translated as slaves, were a very common part of the first century uh, socioeconomic system. Now, I want you to know this morning that the first century Greco-Roman form of what we would call slavery is very different than what we know from 18th and 19th century America. But it doesn't necessarily mean that someone really desired to be a bondservant, desired to be a slave. The reason why this is in the paragraph dealing with 
Christian households is because in that first century Greco-Roman world, it was very much commonplace to have other workers inside the home working with the family and working for the family. And we can make commentary all day long and we can talk about the pros and cons of this type of economic system. We can talk about definitely the ills of of owning individuals and making them subservient to us in our, in our lives. And nowhere in the New Testament is this practice ever taught as a practice that you should just continue to, uh, that, that the Bible approves of. As a matter of fact, we're going to see later on that the Apostle Paul is actually going to be very radical in even his teaching here for the first century years. But at the same time, we have to recognize that the Bible was written to a specific culture at a specific point in time. And in this specific point in time, this is what the world was like. And what God is doing is he's turning their, their notion of what, normat- what normative behavior was upside down. And we're going to see that as we go on through the text today. Now, we, we got to fast forward 2,000 years later and say, well, in 21st century America, our economic system isn't set up this way. I mean, we don't, we don't have slaves. We don't have bond servants where there's a whole class of people that we just have in our homes in this way. So does this just mean that this paragraph of Scripture is just obsolete for 21st century Western Christians? And the answer would be no. Most scholars, most commentators are going to say that this is a perfect paragraph for us to draw principles out of, of how we are to behave in the workplace and how we are to see our own jobs, how we are to relate to our employers and how as an employer we should relate to our employees. And so I want you to be keeping that in mind as we make our way through this short paragraph. So let's pick up in chapter 3, verse 22 of Colossians. Bond servants. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, last week when we looked at God's um, rules or God's order for the household, we saw this central truth. And we're going to use the same central truth today, but we're going to apply it to our workplace. Here it is. What God creates, He also regulates. What God creates, he also regulates. And we're going to see from the text of Scripture today that it is God himself who has actually created work. It was God who gave us the example to work, and it's God himself who created work for humanity. And so since he created it, since he is the source of work, then he also has the privilege and the right to regulate it and create a working order for us to thrive in on earth. So what God creates, he also regulates. So since that's the truth, therefore, as his children, we show the fruit of the gospel by embracing our given roles in the workplace. What I want you to see today is that God is not ambivalent towards work. God actually cares about it. He cares deeply about it. This morning, we may be tempted to think that God only cares about spiritual matters, Bible reading, 
church services, volunteering, or singing Chris Tomlin songs. But as we've seen throughout the Colossian study, the gospel takes root in our hearts and gives birth to fruit in every aspect of our lives. The Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once said, I love this quote, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And I want you to know this morning that your workplace, your employment, and your work ethic are Christ. He wants to own that. And he wants to display his goodness through that. And he wants to take all the ways in which sin has marred work and marred our work ethics and turn them upside down to bring back to the original design the way God initially intended it to be. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm actually going to start in the Old Testament and we're going to work our way towards Colossians, okay? And I'm going to, we're going to look at two big picture truths and then several uh, smaller points under this, especially as we start working towards Colossians 3. But here's the first one. Why do we work? We work by God's design. We work by God's design. If you'll go all the way back to the book of Genesis, because Genesis is the book of beginnings, we're going to see God's creative design for work and for man. We saw some of this last week whenever we looked at the, the God's original intent for the home. But God creates man in Genesis chapter 2. He forms him out of the dust of the ground and he picks him up and he puts him in the garden. And look at what chapter 2 verse 15 of Genesis says. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Don't miss that. God didn't simply put Adam in the garden to walk around in the nude and just having great prayer times with Jesus. That's not the ultimate purpose why he put him in the garden. So yes, is he to walk in relationship with God? Yes, absolutely. But there are other reasons. He has put him there also to work it and to keep it. And this is before the fall. This is before sin enters into the world. But then I want you to see this. The fall happens. And so mankind does sin and sin does come into the world. But that does not change God's creative design. Look at chapter 3, verse 23. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to do what? To work the ground from which he was taken. And so here's simply what I want you to see today. That both pre-fall and post-fall, God's design is the same. His design is intact. He has created humanity. He has created man. He has created woman. And he has created work. And he has created man and woman for work. To work. The Ten Commandments echo this, reinforce this. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 9, Moses says this Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. And so, God, from the first pages of Genesis to the giving of ten, the Ten Commandments to Moses, we see that God's design for humanity is to work. Now, we wrongly assume. That because sin has marred work, and we also know from Genesis chapter 3 that the sin nature is going to make work more difficult, more stressful. It's not exactly what God originally intended. We wrongly assume that because sin has marred it, that somehow this is just man's plight under the sun. 
And this is just something we have to endure until we see Jesus. But there is still a creative purpose behind it. Work itself is not a part of the curse. So we work by God's design. But secondly, and this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning, is we work for God's glory. We work for God's glory. I want to stay in Genesis. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, we saw this last week in the creation of man and woman, husband and wife, and God's created order. We see it also with work. I want you to see a few things here. Pick up with me in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. You see that word image. This means that humanity was created in the likeness of God. It means that we are like God in ways that no other aspect of, hu- of creation is. The duckbill platypus is not created in the image of God. The T-Rex is not created in the image of God. But mankind is created in the image of God. It means that we are like God, but it also means that we represent God on earth. We are God's representatives here. And we're going to go on, go on through here and read, read the rest of it with me. So, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Creeping thing, not creepy thing, okay? Um, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female he created them. We are God's representatives. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I want you to see this truth. God cares why we work. God cares why we work. And it's in understanding why we work that we can glorify God in our work. And this is where theology becomes very practical for you and for me. I want, you to show, I want to show you this in a couple of ways. Here's one. Why do we work? Well, we work to follow God's example. We follow God's example because He Himself worked. God Himself is a worker. You see this in Genesis chapter 2. In the first three verses, he says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so why do we work? We work because God works. And since we are made in his likeness, we are made in His image. We, represent, we, uh, we emulate Him when we work too. We do what God does. And since He's created us in His image, we actually fulfill one of our created purposes on earth when we work and when we work hard. Now, I want to show you this in a different way. Not only um, do we glorify God, by working because God himself worked, but we also glorify God by working because when we work, we also promote the good of humanity. We promote the good of society. We build up our communities. Here's the picture. God creates 
out of nothing. Not out of nothing. He creates everything that is. Every natural resource, everything from which we make everything else to contribute to our good in society, we take what God has created in order to do that. And so here's the picture. He's given us everything he's created so that we can then creatively and positively contribute towards the good of culture and society. So here's the truth this morning. What you do matters. What you do at your job matters. You may not think it matters, but it does. You may be tempted to think this morning that moving boxes across a conveyor belt does not matter. You may be tempted to think that driving a delivery truck tomorrow morning simply does not matter, or that cooking food, vacuuming floors, or taking temperatures, or recording data just simply does not matter in the grand scheme of things. But that's not a healthy way of viewing your job. Bruce Ashford reminds us that the actual work we do should be done as a ministry to God and to our community. Unless a job is illegal or immoral, it serves as a conduit of God's provision for the world, as a way God provides for his creatures. I remember some of the jobs that I had as a student in high school and college. And these jobs um, were, some of them were, I thought were menial. Some of them were not jobs that I thought that I would want for the rest of my life, but they were jobs that definitely helped me pay for my car insurance, helped me buy my first car. They were jobs that actually helped me pay for school. There was actually a point in time when I was a, uh, when I was a student in college, a sophomore in college, where I was working three different jobs uh, in order to be able to pay for tuition, to be able to do everything I needed to do to stay in college. And here, here were some of the jobs I had. I was a stock boy at a grocery store. I was a salesman at a shoe store in the mall. Yes, brothers and sisters, your pastor was one time a shoe salesman. I was a cashier at a movie rental store. It was the good kind of movies. I was a clerk at a Christian bookstore. And I was a night auditor at a hotel. And that job at the hotel was probably the most difficult job I ever had. Because during that season, I don't know if you know what a night auditor does. But here, here's the picture. You get to work at midnight and you, you close the books for the day. And so you add up all the totals for the day and you, you record all the data into the uh, spreadsheets. And after that job is done, which is, only takes you a couple of hours, your job is to just sit there at the desk until 8 a.m. Your job is just to sit there all night. Now, I can tell you, as far as I know, I never fell asleep on the job. But it was a really difficult time because here is the picture. I went to school Monday through Friday. And then I got to Friday night, and I worked 12 to 8 on Friday night, and I, then I worked 12 to 8 again on Saturday night. And then what I did on S Sunday morning is I would get off work at 8 a.m., I would go to my house, I would take a shower, I would put my suit on, and I would drive straight to church because I was a worship leader at church. As far as I know, I also never fell asleep during a sermon. It was a challenging time during my college tenure, but you know what? I glorified God by doing my work. I glorified God by paying for my responsibilities. And every one of those jobs contributed in some way 
to the betterment of society. Working at a grocery store, I provided the order and means by which someone could come and get food and buy it and purchase it and take it home for their family. When I was a salesman at a shoe store in the mall, I was able to help uh, kids put on shoes and try on shoes and create an orderly environment where families could be clothed. When I worked at a, at a movie store, I actually was a, a person who could uh, provide a service for someone so that they could take an inter, a form of entertainment home and spend with their family or with their friends. When I worked at the Christian bookstore, I, I served the owner of that store by making sure that his store was kept nicely, but I also provided a service where Christians could come and buy Christian literature or Christian music. When I was at the hotel, like I, I balanced the books and made sure that someone was manning the station so that passers-by would have a warm place in which to sleep for the night. Whatever we do in work, Monday through Friday or Saturday or Sunday, we are doing ultimately, yes, because we follow the example of God because he works, but also because we, we contribute to the betterment and good of society But this isn't the way work is viewed in our culture, is it? We don't normally think about our jobs in this light. And even culturally speaking, instead of working hard to positively contribute to the good of society, a lot of different aspects of culture tends to elevate the ideals of personal discovery and self-fulfillment above a hard work ethic. This could be one of the reasons that many young adults would much rather stay at home and live in their mom and dad's basement and hold out for the best possible job rather than going down and working at McDonald's, right? A couple of weeks ago, I came across this news article that distinctly underscores this low view of work. The headline says this, couple sells all possessions for sailboat and then sinks two days into trip. This couple both in their mid-twenties, decided that they were tired of working. The young lady says, how can we live our lives when we're working most of the day and you have to pay so much just to live? Most of the work you do goes to your home. There has to be another option. So the Colorado couple sold all their furniture and their SUV and purchased a 49-year-old boat in Alabama to live on and eventually sail the world in personal discovery, and self-fulfillment. She says, we were pretty prepared. However, as the article says, the two were not prepared for what happened next. What happened is the boat sank. Nearly two days into their venture, the boat uh, capsized in a channel of water. And she says that we actually thought the channel was where we were going, where we were supposed to be, but it wasn't. And you go through the article and you find out they had very little experience sailing, very little experience on the water, and now they're left with, everything, with nothing. And she admitted that she and her boyfriend, who used to drive for Uber, were new to sailing. He should have stayed with Uber. <laughs> However... There's good news. The couple who has been left with just $90 in cash, no jobs, and no boat insurance say they are still hopeful for their world sailing plans and have started a GoFundMe page begging people to help them not give up on their dreams. And though the pair seem down and out, they still plan to buy or salvage another boat at some point and try, try, try again. 
This is what they write on their GoFundMe page. And to sum it all up, she says, you only have one life. Why spend it doing what you don't love? Money isn't everything. And culturally speaking, we read this and we say, good for them. Good for them on not giving up on their dreams and their hopes. Let me tell you what the Bible would say about that. It's bunk. It's a lie. This is a lie. What the Bible would tell you, young adults, listen to me. What the Bible would tell you is that you are, if you are an able-bodied individual, if you are an able-bodied man and you are an able-bodied woman, your responsibility before God is to work and to work hard. It's what the Bible teaches us. The Bible does not give us a plan to go and sell everything we have and to drop out of school and to live on a vacation plot or to go buy a yacht and just sail and find our dreams of personal self-discovery. It's just simply not what the Bible teaches us. God wants you to work, have a high view of work, to embrace work so that you may emulate the example of your God and to positively contribute to society and to our culture. And this was not in response to this young couple, and I've not shared their names because I wouldn't want to make a mockery of them because this story is actually a great travesty when you think about it. But in response to this, I would just invoke a, a paragraph from John Piper who was not writing in response to this young couple, but he could have. He says, to be sure, we should help each other find and keep work. We should care about the larger problem of unemployment. It is not first an economic problem, though it is that. It's first a theological problem. Human beings are created in the image of God and are endowed with traits of their creator that fit them for creative, useful, joyful, God-exalting work. Therefore, extensive idleness, when you have the ability to work, brings down the oppression of guilt and futility. God, yes, cares why we work. And it's primarily because we were designed by Him to work. And by His design, we follow His example and provide for society's good. We glorify God. God cares about why we work. But God also cares about how we work. And here's where I want to fast forward back to Colossians 3. God cares about how we work. He is not ambivalent about what you do when you clock in later today or tomorrow. He cares about how we work. And the reason we know that is because in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17, remember this verse? And whatever you do. One of the key words in that passage is the term whatever. So work is included here. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything. There's another word you could circle. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then in verse 23, in the paragraph we read earlier, he says it again. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. This morning, I'm not sure if your boss is more like Michael Scott or Ron Swanson. And, and your day at work may look more like an episode of The Office, or it may look more like an episode of Mike Rowe's Dirty Jobs. But regardless, God cares about how you work. 
Now, two things that I think this means in a practical sense. With this, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, or whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. One, I think it means have a good work ethic. You should work hard. You should put all of your heart into it. You should put your energy into it. And you should do it well, however menial you may think that it is. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 10 echoes this, where Solomon writes, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. And that word translated as to do means to work. And so Solomon is saying, whatever your work is, do it with all of your might. Martin Luther King Jr. echoed this as well. He wrote, whatever your life's work is, do it well. A man should do his job so well that the living, the dead, and the unborn could do it no better. If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper that did his job well. I want you to think this morning about the great diversity in this room as it pertains to vocation. Represented in this room, there are engineers, there are painters, contractors, plumbers, nurses, computer programmers, teachers, moms. That's just a sampling. Here's what I want you to know today. Regardless of what you do, do it well. Do it well. Regardless of what you do, work hard. Work heartily. You don't have to be a type A perfectionist, although if you're that, praise the Lord for you. God loves us too. But you do it well and you work hard. And I think that we could sum this up by saying this. God is not as concerned about what you do as how you do it. Your job matters. It matters this morning. So I believe one way in which we work wholeheartedly as unto the Lord is that we work well. We have a good, strong work ethic. But the second way in which I think we can take this is your attitude. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 again. He says to obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, your bosses, your employers, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. When he talks about as eye service or people pleasers, it's easy to do a good job when the boss is right over you. I mean, it's like we're, we're, we're on the internet, right? And we're, we're surfing eBay shopping, but then the boss comes around the corner and it's, we, we put that down and we're back to what we're doing, what we're supposed to do, right? And Paul's saying, look, don't, don't just work well when he's looking. Don't just work well when she's right over your shoulder, and don't just do it well in order to be a people pleaser. Instead, what does he do? He draws our attention to God. He says, do it with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Ultimately, what Paul teaches us here is that how we work is not predicated upon the qualitative measure of our boss's ability to be a good boss. Instead, our hard work and our attitude at work is predicated upon our worship 
of God. It's a heart issue. Look through the paragraph with me at how much he invokes the name of the Lord. In verse 22, he says, do this fearing the Lord. In verse 23, he says, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Verse 24, he says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And so he's even saying that there is an eternal stake in what your attitude is at work. Boy, this turns work upside down, doesn't it? In verse 25, he actually gives a warning from God. He says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. I have to be honest with you this morning. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that's going to look like at the end of my days. But I also don't want to find out. Because I don't want the judgment of God against me in any shape, form, or fashion. But we can take all of these verses and we can see that God cares about the way we work, why we work, how we work. And it's ultimately because of our devotion to him and not ultimately to man. But here's the deal. And this is one of the things I pray so often for the guys who I have influence over and whom I'm discipling. I often pray, you know, Father, I pray today that Joe would work wholeheartedly as unto you. I pray that he would work today in such a way that he would glorify you with his life, that he would have a good work ethic and a good attitude. I pray that he would work primarily to honor you today and not men. But because he works so wholeheartedly towards you, I pray that it would also bless man. That's the picture, that God is our ultimate, he's the ultimate direct object to whom we work and because we work so well towards him, it blesses our bosses and our fellow employees. God cares why we work. God also cares about how we work. Thirdly, God cares about whom we work with. God cares about whom we work with. When you get to, we've already seen how um, Paul is very passionate about how the worker behaves towards his boss. And we're going to look more at this in just a moment. But look at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so God cares about both ends of this work spectrum. He cares about both the employer and the employee. He cares about both the worker as well as the boss. And both attitudes matter. And the gospel of Jesus Christ should be transforming both of their views towards work and the people whom they work with. And so here's what this means. Let's break it down very practically here. Workers, which I would guess would be most of us in this room. Most of us in this room are not the bosses. Most of us are working for another individual or we report to another individual, an immediate supervisor or another supervisor above him or her. Workers, submit to your boss obediently and respectfully. This is what we see in the text, don't we? Verse 22 says, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Obey in everything we are to be obedient at work. If your boss asks you to do something, you do it. You don't argue with him. You don't try and set out your own course. You, you listen to him and you submit yourself to him. 
And when you do that, you honor God. But Chris, you don't know my boss. He is a complete, incompetent bozo. When I look at this passage, there is no qualifier to that command. God doesn't say, obey your boss if he looks like Jesus. He doesn't say obey your boss if he's the most integrous individual who ever lived on planet earth. He doesn't say obey your boss if he does everything towards you that you want him to do. It says you obey in everything. So workers, submit to your boss obediently. But Chris, what if if he tells me to go against my faith? Well, see, there's a different conversation your boss ever asked you to do something that would be improper, that would lack integrity, or that would be illegal, or to even do something that would go against your faith, then here's what you do. You obey God rather than your boss, and then you be willing to accept the consequences. And that's the, that's the prescription throughout the New Testament, whether it's government, whether it's our bosses, whether it's any other human institution to whom we are to submit, we are to submit to God, ultimately, then we to submit to our bosses up until the point they ask you to do something that's not biblical, and then you obey God rather than them and, and receive the consequences. Workers, submit to your boss obediently, but also submit to your boss respectfully. And here's where the attitude comes in, right? This is where the attitude comes in. Because verse 25 says, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality Every one of us on any given day looks at our job, looks at those whom we report to. There are those even in the church who would look at the church leadership, and we always presume oftentimes that we would do a better job than they are doing. That's just the human intuit. That is human nature. We constantly think that we know better, and none of us is immune from this. And even if you think that you're not, I promise you you are. We can talk afterwards. That's just our heart's nature. And so when that's left unfettered, it can cause us now to not only disobey our bosses, but hold them with bitterness and resentment and speak of them with ill repute. And now we're not only disobeying them, but we're also dismantling and slandering their name and their character. And this is nowhere in the scriptures. You do not honor God by doing that. And so we should both obey our bosses and we should respect them, especially, especially when, from a human sense, they're not really owing much, they're not really owed much respect. That's when we show the power of the gospel most. How does it show the power of the gospel to bless the boss who often blesses you? It really shows the power of the gospel when we bless the boss who actually curses us or makes our life miserable from, time, from day to day or time to time. So workers, submit to your boss both obediently and respectfully. And by doing this, you're showing the fruit of the gospel in your life. Now let's talk to the bosses. Bosses, God also has some words for you. You lead your workers fairly and humbly. There are probably a handful of you in this room who you have charge over a group of employees. And you have responsibility for them. Maybe you are in charge of making their schedule. Maybe you're in charge of signing their paycheck. Maybe they report to you and then you take their concerns to the higher up. But regardless, you have a responsibility for people at your workplaces. Here's what the Bible basically tells you. 
You treat your workers. You lead your employees fairly and humbly. Is that not what the scripture says in chapter 4, verse 1? Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's look at each one of these. Bosses, lead your workers fairly. You show equity in the workplace. You're reasonable. When someone is sick, you're reasonable to them. When someone needs time off, you're reasonable towards them. You look for opportunities to bless your employees. Perhaps it's something as menial as bringing a box of donuts on Friday morning. Maybe it's something as simple as once a month taking the office out to work and just having a fellowship time. Maybe it's during Christmas time you, you seek to bless uh, with, an, with an extra Christmas bonus. It's just being the, the type of employer, the type of boss that is a shepherd at heart, that is working and cultivating the hearts of the people you're leading, that you see your role not as just an institutional, organizational responsibility, as one, but also one as a shepherd to people. Now, this doesn't mean you don't have hard conversations. We have hard conversations in our homes, don't we? When our children have not lived up to their expectations, do we not discipline them? Does it mean that there's never a place for discipline, never a place for hard conversations in the workplace as an employer? But we should be people who are, are leading with an equitable attitude, a shepherding heart, and one that is seeking to love our employees serve our workers and not to domineer over them and treat them simply like property or a simple means to an end. And here's where the gospel comes in. Because it would have been very easy in the first century Greco-Roman world for masters in homes to simply treat their subservient workers in this way. The very fact that the Apostle Paul would give instructions to earthly masters to treat their servants in such a way would have been radical and majorly countercultural to the first century world. And it's no less radical today. We lead our workers fairly, but we also lead them humbly. Look at what Paul does here. He looks at the masters and he says, you treat them fairly and justly. Why? Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. There is someone to whom you report. There is someone to whom you bow yourself under and submit yourself under. And so here's the deal. As you're seeking to lead others, you lead as you are being led. And you submit to your master in such a way that you are modeling servant leadership so that others might defer to yours. And here's the picture. I love 1 Corinthians chapter 7 because here's where we bring some ultimate gospel resolution to some of these tensions we feel over those who are over us or those who are under us. And also in the first century world where you had this, this uh, economic system where people literally were bought and brought into the home in order to work for them. In 1 Corinthians 7 verses 21 to 22, listen to what Paul tells the believers at Corinth. He says, were you a bondservant when called? In other words, were you a slave when you became a Christian? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So what is Paul doing there? Paul is not giving credence to the institution of slavery. He's actually saying that, look, freedom is a good thing. And if it's opportunity for you to do that, then do that. But don't think for a moment that just because you've come to Christ 
that you've now just absolved all of your earthly responsibilities. There's tension there, right? And then he goes on and he says this, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. I love this play on words. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Jesus. Here's what Paul is doing. He's pointing to our ultimate identities. Regardless of whether we are slave or whether we are free, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Regardless of whether we are a worker or whether we are an employer, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Our ultimate identities is not our station at the workplace. But he also points to the radical nature of the gospel. Attitudes and practices that would ultimately be the seedbed on which the emancipation of slaves all over the world would be realized. Like this is the radical nature of the gospel is that both the worker and the employer, both the slave and the master, are one in Christ Jesus. When you think about great uh, lions of the faith, like William Wilberforce in England, who led the, the movement uh, against slavery and the abolitionist movement, when you think about many of the voices in the uh, 19th century America and speaking out against slavery in this own culture, it was... Attitudes like this from the gospel where Paul writes here that ultimately led to that emancipation. Vocationally this morning, here's what this means. Let's, let's bring it back to us and then close. Vocationally, what this truth shows us today is that although God defines a created order in our workplaces and we should follow that because we do have different roles, we ultimately all have equal worth and dignity whether you are a worker, whether you are a boss. And in a 21st century capitalistic economy where oftentimes the white-collar educated elite appears to be worth more than the guy with his name on his shirt, the same gospel preaches the same good news to you and me today. So what do we do with this? Well, first of all, as we said last week, here's our confession. Father, we desperately need your grace to live out your design in our workplaces. If you're here today and you're saying, Chris, this is really difficult because my job is really hard and my boss is really, really difficult and he or she is really, really hard. What I would say is I understand. I get it. I've had them in the past as well. I may even be one today. I'm not sure. It's why we need grace. It's why we need grace. Because there is nothing we've talked about today that is normal. There's nothing we've talked about today that is normative in our sinful hearts. And so here's what we do. We turn to the gospel. And, see, and we say, Jesus, this gospel that you have saved us by, would you now come and empower me today or tomorrow or this week when I go to my job in order to lead or to submit and work in a way that would honor you and contribute to the good of society? That could be your prayer on this day. What if you're not a believer? Well, if you're not a believer in Jesus and the gospel of Jesus has not taken root in your life, then you're going to find that these principles we've looked at today are going to be absolutely impossible. And so what I would do is even in talking about something like work today, I would point you to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The gospel that says if you want to be right with God and you want to be right with other people, and if you want to start fulfilling the life that God actually meant for you to have, then what you do is you recognize that you are a sinner. You are a man or woman of unclean lips living in a land of people of unclean lips. And you turn away from your sin and you do what the Bible says, repent. And you acknowledge that you're a sinner and you turn from that sin. And you say, Jesus Christ is the one who lived that perfect life that we were required to live. And died the punishing death that we should have died. But rose victoriously so that we not only would have life in the afterlife, but we would have life in this life. And he would begin righting all the wrongs of society. And he will begin writing all the improper views and attitudes in our different institutions, including work. I want to pray for you today, and then we're going to respond by singing. And wherever the Lord would have you today to respond, I want to encourage you to respond. Respond. And if you want to talk to someone today, reach out and take somebody by the hand and say, I really need to unpack some of these things from my life. Father, we come before you today asking you, to speak to us now. You've spoken through your word. You've given us your instruction. And now I pray in the calm and quiet of our hearts that you would show us where we need to change. That you would show us how we need to align ourselves under your lordship, submit ourselves under your created design and plan. And I pray today that you would convict us at our hearts where we're wrong. That you would affirm us in our hearts where we're right. And that you would give us life today to go out from this place and show the world that we belong to Jesus through the way we work, through the way we relate to our bosses, or the way we lead our workers. And we pray all of this in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and in his name. Amen.